you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. John chapter 7, verses 32 through 8, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 32 to chapter 8, verse 1. So in 1968, Lyndon B. Johnson, President Lyndon B. Johnson, signed into effect what was known as the Colorado River Basin Project Act. The Colorado River Basin Project Act. And this act would allow states like Arizona, for example, to then lobby for what would later be known as the Central Arizona Project. And if you haven't heard of that, you need to Google it and look it up. It's actually pretty cool. And it would allow them to gain access from the Colorado River. And you might be thinking, well, the Colorado River is nowhere near Arizona. And you are exactly right. And so what this allowed them to do was to build a canal, a 336-mile canal from the Colorado River all the way down into Arizona, reaching cities like Phoenix and Tucson. And over time, that resource has expanded and has spilled over even into New Mexico. This canal, if you look at it, and it really is astonishing to look at, holds 456 billion gallons of water. (laughs) And that's what passes through the canal every year. But it doesn't just apply drinking water. I mean, there was drinking water in Arizona prior to this. But it supplies drinking water for a growing population, but not only that, it helps agricultural development, outdoor recreation, even contributing to fish and wildlife conservation. So it helps broaden the scope of life in a place that is pretty dry. The water source offers more to Arizona than just drinking. It provides life. And it provides resources they would not have had otherwise. And so I bring this up because Jesus, here in the story, he didn't live in Arizona. Let me be clear. He's been making a point for some time in the Gospel. In the Gospel of John. That he is the living water. That he is the bread of life. That if you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, weird I know, you will live. And so this theme of water, this theme of coming to Jesus, this theme of drinking, this theme of eating, keeps weaving its way back to Himself and showing itself in John's Gospel. And we will see that water again here in this chapter. Jesus is calling people to more than just a temporal quenching of thirst, but a quench that brings eternal satisfaction. And not just something that quenches your own soul, just, oh, this is good for me, but a water that also impacts every other facet of life and goes beyond you. So Jesus is going to turn up the dial in presenting who He is as the living waters. But He's also going to show how we are not only just the recipients of that water, but we are, let's say, the cities. We are the, the recipients who then take that water and spread it out and help supply living water to a dying community around us. And so we are going to be looking at 
Jesus, the living waters today. And kiddos, if you guys are, uh, you have your clipboards and papers and pencils and crayons, I just have one thing for you to draw today, okay? I'll just mention it here on the front end. So on your drawing, on your picture, this will help you kind of remember what's going on today. Draw this picture of a sky. You have a sky at the top and you have the earth down below. Okay, however you want to draw the sky, doesn't matter. However you want to draw the earth below. But then I want you to draw a picture of a river flowing from the sky down to the earth. Right? Draw a picture of a river flowing from the sky down to the earth. Okay, color it in however you want, make it look however you want. And the last thing is, I want you to write the words of verses 37 and 38 next to that picture. Verses 37 and 38 next to that picture. We're going to see this really cool picture of how this living water, these, this river of living water flows from the heavens down to the earth to God's people. And this will help you have conversations with mommy and daddy or others to visualize what Jesus is getting at today. For those of you not coloring and drawing, <laughs> we will begin to see in verses 32 through 36, living waters sourced in the heavens. Read with me or follow with me in verse 32 to 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. And what were they muttering? They were muttering, well, who is this Christ? Who is this guy? What's going on? I'm speculating this. I'm speculating that. That's what muttering is. Capturing tidbits of information and going, well, I think this is who he is. Well, I think this is what I've heard and this is what I know. And so finally, it's coming back around to the Pharisees. And remember, the crowd was afraid to say anything out loud for fear of the Jews. But it has gotten to the Jews, or that is the authorities. So the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So again, there's this muttering, this speculation of who Jesus is and what's going on in the Sadducees here. We're talking about the Sanhedrin. When you see this verbiage here, the, the Pharisees and the officers and the chief priests We're talking about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the highest ruling court um, in the Jewish world at this time. Rome is ruling, so the Jews are underneath Roman rule. But the Jews were given some uh, governance, if you will, over Jerusalem and then really over the inner workings of Israel. And so the Sanhedrin was a, a mix of people, Pharisees, Sadducees, and also the elders of Israel who would make judicial decisions and so forth regarding the Jews. Now, they couldn't just exercise you know, criminal, uh, criminal cases or capital cases without the permission of the Roman governor. Hence, when Jesus dies, they have to go before Pontius Pilate just to make sure that they can crucify him. But nonetheless, they're able to 
um, make these more civil uh, arrests or cases. And so here is the Sanhedrin wanting to uh, arrest Jesus. And then Jesus was speaking, and perhaps the same time that the officers, and we're talking about the temple officers, right? We're, we're talking about temple guards who come from the Levit- Levitical priesthood, from the Levitical family. These guys aren't like rough, tough, you know, frontline military guys. These are guys like mall cops on segways, right? They're coming in and they're like, they have to uphold the rules of the temple and so forth, and they're coming to arrest him. They have some authority, but it's not very powerful, if you will. So they come in, and as they're coming in, Jesus is teaching the crowd. He's saying, I have to go away. I'll be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is speaking about his death. He's been talking about his father this entire time. I only do the works of the Father. I only speak what the Father speaks. I don't do anything of my own accord. Right? The Father is the one who sent me, and it will be the Father to whom I return. And so Jesus is talking about going back to the Father. You will try to find me, but you won't be able to find me. Where I go, you cannot go. And so Jesus is talking about something that is exclusively meant for Him. That is the throne. That is the throne at the right hand of God. You see, for many, the idea of knowing that death is coming would cause someone to run away or to be fearful or to avoid death altogether. That's maybe what the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin was thinking. Oh, Jesus is trying to avoid this whole thing. No. Death was the ticket to freedom. That's where Jesus was heading. The ticket back home was the cross, the death, the resurrection, and even the ascension. We often forget that whole picture of the Easter story and everything that happened afterwards. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus rose from the grave. But then what? He hung around for a time, but then He ascended. And it's very important that we understand the ascension because as we will see here in a minute, the ascension is the, the key that brings the Holy Spirit. It's crucial. But what Jesus is saying is, where I'm going, you cannot come, is that I have a seat at the throne. And of course, the contemporaries here didn't understand what Jesus was saying. We understand because we know the whole Gospel of John. We know the whole story here. And so for the readers of John's Gospel, they're like, okay, yeah, I I get where this is going. But we have to understand right away what Jesus is not saying is you're not welcome into heaven. You're not welcome to where I am. I mean, the Bible makes very clear that we will join in His inheritance. We will join in His grace and the glories that uh, He has for us. And we will have a seat with Him on the throne. But what it does not say is that we are the ones sitting on the throne and Jesus will sit with us. He is the one who sits on the throne. And in that position, He has all power, all authority. At that time, death will be defeated. Sin will be overcome. And at that time, all of those who believe in Him will have the power of Christ residing within them. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And the Jews have no clue. Well, where is he going to go? He's going to go hide off and run. And it might seem weird. Is he going to go off to the, the dispersion of the, of the Greeks and preach to the Greeks? 
They thought to themselves, if Jesus is going to run away, he can't just run away in Israel because we're going to find him. Well, maybe he's going to run off into really the, the wider scope of the known world. But it's even more than that. This is a time of festivity. This is a feast. This is a festival. And so you had Jews from all over the known world, all over the Greek world, coming into Jerusalem for this feast, just like they would for the Passover. And this word dispersion refers back to the time where the Israelites were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, right? They were dispersed among the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, right? As far as as far east as India, right? And then all the way up into Rome, all along the Mediterranean. And then after God brought Israel back from the captivity, after you see the walls of the temple being rebuilt and the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt and the Jews coming back in, not all the Jews who were carried off and their family came back. Some stayed out and they were dispersed. The dispersion. And because the Greek, the Greco empire had come in, what they had done is they had made Greek the common language. So you had Jews throughout the dispersion who spoke not only the language of their native land, whether that's Medes or Persian or whatever it is, but they also spoke Greek. And I'm telling you this because this is, a, this is exactly what we're going to see in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit comes and falls, and it falls upon the Jews... And it says, I hear every man speaking in his own native tongue. Because every Jew had the ability in the least to speak Greek. And so they thought, well, maybe after all these Jews who had come in from the the surrounding world, Jesus is going to maybe just like jump in the back of a wagon and and sneak off and hide to where we can't find him. Is that what he's, he's intending to do? And really, that's not at all what Jesus is getting at in any way. And of course, the irony is that the Spirit is going to fall upon these Greek Jews in Acts chapter 2, maybe about seven to eight months after this scene. We need to see, or we need Jesus, church, we need Jesus on the throne. We have to have Him on the throne. If He is not on the throne, then His great commission to us is powerless. He says, I have all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. Jesus must be on the throne. He must be more powerful than the problems of life. He must be more powerful than government. He must be more powerful than death. He must be more powerful than sickness. It is at the right hand of the Father that Jesus shows us He is ultimate supreme authority and power. And not only that, That means the water that we will have access to comes from the greatest and most powerful source of all. From Him. From the heavenlies. From Christ. Right? There's going to be some element of fault with the the canal from the Colorado River to Arizona. It's made by human hands, but this living waters we have in Christ is sourced from the most powerful source in all the universe. Christ alone. So do not forget that. Is there a source from which you're depending or that you're drawing from to give you some sort of life, some sort of joy, some sort of happiness, something that you think it might possibly be greater than Jesus? 
I mean, what is it that you put your hope in? What is it you long for every day? Right? Like if you think about it, and of course, here I go again to football, right? The jock in me. If you think about NFL football, over the course of my own lifetime, it went from just like Sunday to Monday night, but now you got like Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and then you have ESPN, you have all the talk radio, you can never get enough of it. I went to a football game yesterday, and people are sitting there with headphones in their ears listening to other football games while watching a football game, right? So these are the things we press into, not just knocking football. I like football, but we do that in other avenues. Like we put our ear to other things. We put our eyes to other things. We're looking to something that satisfies us, that brings us joy, that brings us happiness, but ultimately it will run dry. It'll fail. My son Ethan discovered this. Hey, bub. Did you guys know Dasani puts salt in their water? I got one yes. I never pay attention. You, you pay attention to ingredients. I just eat and then ask questions later. Well, they do that to get you thirsty, to get you coming back and drinking for more, right? That's a, it's smart. Man, these people are smart. So really, a bottle of Dasani water is never satisfying, right? It, all, it makes you just more thirsty. Makes you more thirsty, drying you out. The world sources water that never satisfies, church. It may give some pleasure for the moment, may seem satisfying for the moment, but like salt, it's just going to suck you dry. But Jesus gives water that is sourced in the heavens, and this is water that quenches And so we see in verses 37 through 39, living waters quenches a thirsty soul. 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who did not believe in or who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified this great day we're in the the feast of tabernacle the feast of booths if you will and the great day is either referred to as the seventh day or the eighth day there's a little bit of confusion here the scripture seems to um, point towards the seventh day but it's not a hundred percent clear. Now, just a quick recap and refresher of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time every year in the fall where the Jews would come in. This was a huge festivity. People would come in from all over the place and they would celebrate for an entire week and everybody would build a miniature tabernacle, a miniature tent, and it would be this wood frame with tree branches on the roof. And it would remind Israel Right? So people would go out of their homes and build a tent and live in that tent for the week. And it was a reminder of how God supplied and sustained Israel in the wilderness after He had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. And so it's a great time of rejoicing, a great time of celebration. Also, it was a time of harvest. And so there was rejoicing in God's provision. And this was also a time to just be praying for the rains to come in the coming months. And so what would happen every single day 
during this festival, in the morning, there would be a water offering, or a water pouring, where the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam, which is a pool that we'll see in John chapter 8, and they would dip a golden cup into the pool of Siloam, and they would walk back up to the temple, and as they would walk back up to the temple, it would be in procession, and they would be quoting and singing Psalms 113 through 118. And they would do this every single day, but then on the last day, the great day, they would do this seven times. And they would take that water and they would pour it upon the altar. And so as they were heading up to the temple, they were singing Psalms 113 through 18, like I mentioned. And if you were to thumb through Psalms 113 to 118, you will find the beauty of why they chose these psalms to sing. Let me give you just a little bit of a highlight. You'll see that they are singing a song that is ultimately for the nations. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. You're talking about the nations are literally in Jerusalem celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And yes, this is a praise of all the nations. They're singing a song for the wanderer. Psalm 114 says, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. How fitting that God would take people out of their homes in Egypt and He would bring them into the wilderness homeless people, and they would become the dwelling place, the home of the living God. With them He has made His dwelling. This would be a song for the thirsty soul out of Psalm 114. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. What a beautiful reminder of God's provision, not only of bread, but even of of water. This would be a song for the weary. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. A song of rejoicing. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. And a song anticipating the Messiah. You see this in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So the The whole purpose of this water pouring, if you will, is just two things in very simple fashion. The Lord's provision of bread and also water in the wilderness, but also the Lord promising to pour out His Holy Spirit in the last days. So the the Jews of this time were anticipating Messiah, anticipating Christ, Not that God just provides bread and water in this moment, but also that He would bring the Messiah. And it's like, the Messiah is right there. Jesus has been saying this the whole time. And we're like, I know, right? (laughs) And so Jesus takes this opportunity. This opportunity. And He stands up. And He doesn't just say quietly. He doesn't say it in a very calm way. He cries out. A message that he spoke to a woman in, from Sychar, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, the same very thing that he's told her in private and to himself, if you will, Jesus now stands publicly 
before thousands of people, before the nations, before all of those who are desiring and longing for the Messiah, He says these words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. They're watching the water make its way up to the temple grounds to be poured out onto the altar, to spread throughout the entire altar. And Jesus is saying, Come to Me, eat and drink. And not only come to me and drink, but whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And these are highlights, or these actually point us to a couple different places in the book of Isaiah. When Jesus says, come to me and drink, it reminds us of Isaiah 55.1, which is, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus speaking messianically here. There's nothing you need to do. You can be poor and come and drink. When Jesus says to us or to the crowd that living water will flow out of you, that word there is talking about from the belly, from the emotions, from the gut of who you are. Not only will you come to me and drink, but out of you will flow these rivers of life, which is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11, which says, And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Not only do you come to Jesus, the source of living water, and drink from Him, but from you will be all these wonderful things, life-giving things. And so what is Jesus saying? John gives us commentary in verse 39 that the waters that are coming are coming by way of the Holy Spirit. We see that picture in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Coming by way of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going to teach this later on. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit cannot come. I have to get back to the throne, to the right hand of the Father, in order for the Spirit to come and be poured out like water all over the earth and be poured out upon, upon His people. And upon who? Those who believe in Jesus. He must ascend and He must be glorified. This is the beauty of what we see in John chapter 17, especially when He's praying to the Father, Father, let me be glorified as I was with You before all of creation. From all eternity past, I want to be glorified with You again. And so until He comes or goes, the Spirit cannot come. Church, Jesus is our living waters. The canal, the conduit, is the Holy Spirit. We are the city receiving the life-giving waters of the heavenlies. And Jesus is saying, come to me. And for those of you who may be in the room who do not know Jesus, you don't follow Jesus, you're not a believer, this is the invitation of Christ. He's taken this opportunity to just cry out to you, come to me and drink and live. But let me ask you, those of you who are believers, 
What sort of song does this cause your heart and your soul to sing? What are you singing? Like, it's really easy to criticize the Jews, to criticize the fact that they're missing Jesus entirely. But even in their missing Jesus here, they are still responding with some sort of song and praise. And sometimes that's better than what we do, who know who Christ is. But what is the song of praise that we're singing? Are we singing a song for the nations? Do you want the nations to know this living water? Do you have a desire for this living water to be poured out among the nations? Do you have a song praising Him for making you His dwelling place? Church, we are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the living God, the place in which His Holy Spirit dwells. Are you praising Him for that? Do you praise Him for His eternal quench of your thirsty soul? There's no salt in this water. It's good water. And not only that, the supply never ends. It's endless. It's eternal. And how about a song of praise of rest? Or a song of rejoicing for Jesus is our chief cornerstone. The irony again is that the Jews are going to be the ones who reject this chief cornerstone. But you and I, we do not reject Him. And if you do, I call you to repentance. Don't reject Him. He is the chief cornerstone. All weight, all everything is held upon Him. The church is held upon Him. And so church, we are also witnesses of the living water. We don't just get to go to Him and just tap into that water source and drink for ourselves and enjoy this water, but we are also the means by which the waters flow from us. We're not living waters where the the spigot is turned off or the hose is turned off. In fact, the water is flowing. It is moving. And so we need to be watering all areas of life if you will. The living waters of Christ should be flowing out of our conversation from our lips and how we talk to our spouses, how we talk to our children, how we encourage and build one another up. This must be an ongoing and outpouring of the waters of Christ. I don't want to be an embarrassment to our brother Stiko. He was supposed to preach this message. and Of course he couldn't. But I told him because he's been sharing online in church center that he's been reading Scripture to his father. His father can at least hear Scripture. And I reminded him, I said, brother, you are providing for him living waters. Like Every time you open God's Word and you're just reading it to him, it's just a, it's just a river and a fountain of unending water that will just quench his soul. That will be life to him even as his life seems to be up and down. That is what we're getting at here. What are, what are our thoughts? What are our words? Our actions? Do they look like they are tapping into the eternal source of living waters? Or does it look like it's tapping into some other sort of source? Hey kiddos, let me ask you something. You ever been at the dinner table and knocked over your drink on the table? Yeah, Olivia does it all the time. Is your mom and dad like super happy every time that happens? Oh, they love it, don't they? Like, I just made all this food and sat down. Ah! 
It's so true, Chet. But, but what happens, right? As soon as that drink is spilled, it just covers the table. Right? And everybody's like, deploy, you get a towel, you get a towel, cover that table, cover that corner, cover this corner, right? We're like, we're all scrambling to make sure that the water, the milk, the juice, whatever you're drinking doesn't hit the floor. Life in the Holy Spirit is that way. We are to take the good news to everyone. And this is what God does. He just opens up and unleashes His Spirit upon the world, right? The, full, the glory of God will be known among the nations. The knowledge of God be known among the nations. And not only just in the pouring of a Spirit in general, but also through us. We, ha- we are the temple in which the Holy Spirit resides. And so through us then is that constant outpouring and outflowing. And so as you go, you need to go and share the good news. You need to tell your lost friends about Jesus. Let me just be a little bit more forward here. Like We're really good at being in community and comfortable with one another in this room. We're all believers and we need to make disciples. But I think sometimes we really struggle in reaching across the aisle and sharing with people who are not believers. Sharing with our bosses who may not like us afterwards or our coworkers, or whoever it is, our neighbor, right? We don't want to unsettle the neighborhood by sharing the good news of Jesus and being the religious weirdos. But guys, if they aren't drinking from the living waters, they will spend eternity in hell. And so it is our joy to go and share those living waters with everyone we know. Everyone we know. And as you do, be aware, your thirst will be satisfied in Christ, and it should be, but the world will reject you. Let me just say it plainly. The world is going to reject you, though not all. And so the last part, living waters rejected by the world, verse 40 to the end. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. If you guys remember last week, they could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They had the same question, 
Who is this? Is this the Christ? You can't possibly be the Messiah because we know where you come from. You come from Nazareth. You come from Galilee. We know all about you. But again, they didn't know all about him. They thought he was from Nazareth. But we know, and Christmas is coming, he was born in Bethlehem. He comes from the Davidic line. He is a son of David. He didn't argue this point with them. Oh, well, let me tell you about where I was really born and who my dad really is. No, he didn't, he didn't go toe-to-toe with them on that because that would have been a moot point, honestly. But they sat there and they, it was more mutterings again. More grabbing onto tidbits of information of here's who I think Jesus is and maybe, maybe so, maybe not. But really what we're seeing is that they have a lack of knowing Jesus and really just believing in the muttering themselves. And so the Sanhedrin comes in and they say to the, to the officers, the Segway officers, hey, uh, you're supposed to have somebody <laughs> with you. Why aren't they with you? I'm sure they were stronger officers than mall cops, okay? I don't know why I'm trying to be funny. So they questioned the officers, why didn't you bring him? And they said, and perhaps their doctrine is right, no one has spoken like him. No one had, you should have been there, right? You should have seen, you should have heard what he said. No one has ever spoken like this. And so the Sanhedrin does only what the Sanhedrin knows how to do best and just insults them. You're deceived. You're you're fools, right? But ultimately, they're the ones deceived. And so then the Sanhedrin does what they do best, is that then they just go on insulting the crowd. They speak arrogantly towards the crowd. This, law, this crowd is just a curse. They don't, they're ignorant according to the law. They are unlearned people, just like Jesus, who is unlearned. We, the Sanhedrin, know the law. We know the Scripture. We know who the Messiah is, who the Christ is, and that is not Him. Do not be deceived. But the good news will ultimately be is that Jesus will fill the earth with knowledge. And then we see this character again, Nicodemus. We saw him earlier in John's Gospel. Nicodemus, he is one of the Sanhedrin. He's one of the Sanhedrin. And he had come to Jesus early on, and he didn't come to him in the middle of the day. He didn't come to him in front of a crowd. He came to him in the middle of the night. He came to him during the dark. And he began to question him. But then you begin to see that, Je- or that Nicodemus is starting to take steps towards Jesus. Right? He doesn't come out uh, explicitly in defense of Jesus here, but he asks a very simple question according to policy, if you will. Well, don't you think it's against the law for us to just judge this man without giving him a proper hearing? And this was not Old Testament law. This was law that was most likely made up later on as part of the policy in which they uh, conduct these sort of matters. But what we do see here is that there's a high level of hypocrisy. The Sanhedrin here is sitting here and calling these officers ignorant or deceived, calling the crowd ignorant, not understanding the law, and yet all the while they are not even upholding the law. 
They're wanting to bypass the law, break the law in order to arrest Jesus, and Nicodemus calls them out on it. And so you begin to see Nicodemus come into the light, which is one of the major themes of John's Gospel. Light and darkness. And eventually, at the very end, when Jesus dies, it'll be Nicodemus who comes out in the open when Jesus is dead, seeking the kingdom of God. He and Theophilus. So Jesus, from this point on, Jesus, everyone goes to their homes. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives because His time was not yet. They could not arrest Him yet. The time had not come for this to happen. And of course, another bit of irony here, right? Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't go run off to the Greeks. He doesn't go run off to the nations. He goes across the street to the Mount of Olives <laughs> where they can see Him, where they could find Him. And still yet, his time had not come and they could not arrest him. Church, the water you drink and give out does and will continue to cause the world to bristle up against you. The world does not like the water you have. The world does not like the water that you have to offer. They will throw it back at you. And you must be aware of this. You must not be blindsided by that reality. Because here's the water of the world, right? If we're comparing the water of Jesus and the water of the world, the water of the world is an insulting water. It insults you. The water of the world is hypocritical, telling you, you need to do this, but really not doing it themselves. The water of the world is full of arrogance and ego, self-satisfying, self-glorifying. That's the water of the world. That's why it's empty. That's why it's in vain. That's why it never truly satisfies. But the water of Jesus gives knowledge, gives understanding. Oh my goodness, you are the bread of life. Yes, I am to eat of your flesh and drink of your blood. I understand now, right? You are the living waters. This is what the waters of Christ does. Gives you knowledge and understanding. Gives you right judgment. The waters of Christ also gives you courage. Courage to come to the light like we see Nicodemus here. We'll get into this in chapter 8, but Jesus is going to have that that great sermon where He says He's the light of the world. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, not only do they do the water pouring ceremony, but they also light the lanterns of of the temple up to where it lights the and illuminates the entire city. And so you can almost see Jesus showing, I am the light of the world as well. And so Jesus, His water provides us the courage to step into the light and not run away from it. And the living waters of Christ also take skeptics, unbelievers, haters, and turns them into believers. There is really no greater joy than to see lost people come to saving faith taking a big drink of Jesus and their eyes being opened and their heart being full of joy and the excitement that fills their soul. And not only that, but then to see their entire life changed. Radically changed. It's a beautiful thing to see. And this was all of us at one point. Gone astray. Dead in our sins. Enemies of God. And then the living waters came to us. 
through grandparents, through neighbors, friends at school, and we drank and we came alive. And here's the good news of this water. It is never going to run out and it is never going to run away. It is going to stay near. Jesus is not running off. He's not afraid of the cross. He's not afraid of the insults. He's not afraid of what is coming down the road. He stays here. He stays near because six months from this time, He's going to have to endure the cross so that we might actually live. So then, like our Lord, be courageous to stand against the world with truth. This water will sustain you. This water will sustain you. It's good for you. Good for your soul. And though the world rejects you, you have to remember, ultimately, they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus, not you. The world hates you because it hated Jesus first. Don't get all worried about your, you know, people not liking you. Yes, it's not nice. It's painful. It hurts at times. But just understand, it is better to be friends with Jesus than, the friends, than friends with the world. And so whatever comes your way, never cease to go to Jesus and be reminded of how He supplies you with something greater. 456 billion gallons of water per year is a number I cannot honestly fathom. I just can't even put my mind around it. And that's not just because I'm terrible at math. (laughs) It's a visual wonder to see the engineering feat it took to create such a structure. Again, go look at it online if you haven't already. To how something so massive could hold so much water and supply so much to communities. But there is something lacking with that water supply. First of all, you have the hindrance of nature. About 5.2 billion gallons of water evaporate from the canal every single year due to the heat. So they're losing over 5 billion gallons of water and they they say if the temperature continues to rise, they'll continue to lose more and more. You also have the human element. Access to that water is controlled by human hands and human decisions. Who's going to allow that water to continue to flow? It's also dependent upon human engineering and structural durability that that canal can remain for a long period of time and continue to sustain to hold that much water. The divine supply of water that we have through the Holy Spirit cannot be disrupted by anything. Anything in nature, anything in humanity, nor anything in the invisible realm. There's absolutely nothing. The spiritual canal we have is permanently and eternally established through Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit. That's why there's nothing in life that can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither height nor depth. Right? Nothing. No rulers. No principalities. You can starve us to death and we still have Christ. You can torture us and we still have Christ. You can take away this church building and we still have 
Christ. We will all see the grave and we still have Christ. And so we have access to living waters that will never run out or go dry or run the risk of going away. Not possible. So then stand courageous and do so with great rejoicing. Sing the the songs of the tabernacle processions. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And He's to be greatly praised for He quenches our thirsty souls with a water that is sourced in the heavens and does so in a way that though the world rejects it, the world cannot overcome it. Father, we thank You for the living waters that we have been supplied through faith in Jesus alone. We thank You for the giving of the Holy Spirit that we have the constant reminder of we have the assurance of things hoped for. We have the the deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance because of the Holy Spirit. And so we can be sure that the living waters that we have access to will never run out. 